Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. I'm Melanie Rosen and I like to listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, and that's 8.55 on your AM band. Chocolate. Researchers tell us 14 out of any 10 individuals like chocolate. Much serious thought has been devoted to the subject of chocolate. What does chocolate mean? Is the pursuit of chocolate a right or a privilege? Does the notion of chocolate preclude the concept of free will? Sandra Boyton, Chocolate, the Consuming Passion, 1982. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Are you having a hard time controlling the way you eat? Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous is a recovery program for people who suffer from food obsession, overeating, bulimia and undereating. FA is free and open to all women, men and teens that want to stop eating addictively. For a list of regular weekly meetings in the Melbourne area, visit foodaddicts.org. And I'm speaking to Dr Anka Sook from Macquarie University. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Now, you've been doing quite a bit of research into addiction. So what would your definition of addiction be? I I have quite a, a normative definition of addiction. So for me, I draw the line between substance use and substance misuse or dependency when it starts to violate someone's values and someone's uh, the things someone finds important in life when when they notice that those kind of things are they are not able to realize those kind of things anymore because of the substance use that's when kind of experimenting with substance use or fun substance use turn into dependency so that would be the, the long definition so what was it that inspired you to study addiction i think one of the as, as a researcher, one of the things, and as a philosopher, I always, I was always in, very interested in is to give voice to people who are not very heard in society. So I started working at an institute that researched all kind of mental health problems, and then, and addiction as well. And then I started to become very interested in, in addiction because the behavior is so puzzling and there's so much stigma around it, and we. I don't think we hear that many voices of people with addictions. So I think that's how I kind of got into it. Are there different types of addictions? 
when you ask about different types of addictions, people would think about different substances you can get dependent on, or like a lot of behaviors have a lot of similarities with addictive behaviors, so like shopping or gaming or sex. So people would think of that that kind of typology of addictions. But what I find interesting or what I think should be developed is a, a different way of looking at addiction. So so don't look at the, the substances, but more the, the reasons why people use them. And there's this, this very interesting uh, research where they let people do a, a gambling task. So they had to choose between different piles of cards, and some cards would give uh, high rewards but high punishments, and others would give uh, low rewards but low punishments. And the, the low reward, low punishment was more beneficial after you draw more cards. So they let people choose from different, from four different piles. And they, they measured their skin conduct, and they saw that kind of normal control people would start picking cards and then would shift automatically to kind of the, the low reward but low punishment so they get a better overall effect. And they measured the skin conduct, and when they would draw cards from the, the high-risk decks, they would get they would be sweaty, so they would anticipate kind of punishment, and it would upset them, and that's how they kind of... That's what kind of guided their behavior to choose for the low-risk desk. But when they let people with addiction do the same task, they divided two subgroups, or three sub three subgroups, and one group responded exactly like the controls. So they they had the the skin reaction, and they they they, they shifted over to the low-risk desk. So Bagara. Like the researchers, they call that group the functional addict, so the people who can use the substances but still have a feeling for, like, don't risk, don't jeopardize the long-term effect on their lives. And the other group uh, did have a skin conduct, so they had fear when they choose the high-risk desk, but they kept choosing the high-risk desk, and they call them... Uh, highly sensitive for rewards. So they, they knew that what they were doing was bad, but they still choose the, the high-risk test. The third group had a, didn't show any skin conduct, so they, they didn't notice that they were doing high-risk things. And Bagara said, well, those people are kind of uh, short-sighted. They, they, they always choose immediate rewards because they don't have a concept of future. So they... They distinguish between functional addicts and people who are short-sighted and people who are highly sensitive for rewards. And I think the, the research should get more into that direction rather than in the direction of different substances to make subtypes in that way. Because what it's all about is, is why people use drugs rather than what they use, I think. So it's sort of the short-term benefit versus long-term sort of benefits. Yes, yes. Mm. And, and they're now doing more research to say, well, kind of different substances can have a totally different effect on different people. So the most uh, classical example is the, 
most people when they use speed they become hyperactive but people who are hyperactive calm down when they use speed so different brains react differently to different substances and it would be interesting to do more research to look like some people find alcohol very relaxing while they become very aggressive when they use alcohol so why do these substances have different effects on different people would be it would be a way to classify addiction. Yeah, it could be. And I suppose, too, with there's so much new technology as well. I know myself, when I get onto eBay, it's sort of a real thrill if I'm actually bidding on something and someone's bidding against mm. me. And you get that adrenaline rush, even if it's, you know, something something like a you know, a really cheap scarf or something that you're actually bidding on. it. It's not really what you're going to win, but it's, it's that thing of getting that adrenaline rush that you might be the winner. So I suppose with technology and, and probably some sort of computer games as well, that would sort of come into it, wouldn't it, that people get addicted to these games and they literally stay awake all night playing them. And, and the research they did into gaming is that the games that are most addictive are the games that uh, have some social pressure as well and that have a lot of rewards so it's kind of works on the reward system as well people must find it very rewarding they can like, same with the bidding you have this anticipation of reward and that's what kind of drives you and, and you have the social pressure and that's what actually makes games or internet or the sex as well online porn what it makes addictive so it's not that all games are addictive and like the with gumtree you don't have the, the bidding with the time clock so that would be less addictive than with ebay when there's this time pressure and you have more your know, anticipation of reward gets you more in the the now modus rather than the, the long-term perspective you become really entrenched in the now, now, now. Yeah, that's definitely right because if, if you see something on Gumtree and you think, well, there's a set price, either I buy it or I don't, it's not like I'm competing against anybody to actually get it. So I can understand why, why people sort of like bidding on eBay because they really get that adrenaline rush, you know, and that, that sort of sense of I won, I beat someone. Even if it doesn't doesn't actually matter what you're actually bidding on, but you've beaten someone and you've you've won the prize because they, they actually send you a message afterwards. Congratulations, you've won. So so it is. It, it's sort of like a gaming type situation, isn't it? And even for people who who wouldn't sort of go and play poker machines or buy lottery tickets, you can just jump online and buy something on on eBay. So it's sort of like a a new addiction, isn't it? Now, is the desire for pleasure the only reason for addiction? No, and I think pleasure even plays a smaller role than, than most people most people think. Because I don't know if you remember your, your first experience with the substance, alcohol, or... Mostly you don't find it pleasurable the first time you use it. So there are often other reasons why you try it again. It often takes you a few times before you start to enjoy drinking or smoking. So I think pleasure is, is just a... It, it's what most people think about when they think about addiction, that it's some kind of self-indulgement. But 
with the people I interviewed, a lot of people that used in adolescence, they were very curious. They were curious more about the lifestyle, like the kind of fast life, kind of groovy, exciting life musicians have. So that was the kind of curiosity. But a lot of people describe it as a self-medication for the kind of loneliness and depression you could feel in adolescence. And once they started drinking, it kind of eased their social anxiety, their feeling of uneasiness with themselves. So it, for most people it started as a kind of self-medication. And for another group it was a kind of self-enhancement. You, you notice that you can, and that's especially more the, the speed-type drugs. It keeps you going and it helps you make, it helps you do longer hours. But also coffee is kind of self-enhancement. And for some people, smoking is a kind of self-enhancement because it helps you relax. So I think those are the, the main reasons, self-medication, self-enhancement, or curiosity to, I don't know, new experiences. What is the lay view of addiction? Well, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I think I think because addiction resembles our, our own feelings of loss of self-control like when we everyone everyone has had these experiences in their lives where they I don't know, they ate too much or they stayed too long at a party or they went to bed too late because they wanted to watch a movie so you kind of you indulge yourself in a way that has consequences for other things you find important in life but for for most people those are only incidents like you you want to exercise in the morning, but you stay in bed. So it happens once in a while, and it doesn't have big consequences for the rest of your life. Like you don't lose your job when you, you get to work late once in a while. And because it's, for most people, it's, we know the experience of self-indulgement, and we kind of get over it with willpower. We think that people with addiction are in the same situation, and they, they just self-indulge, and they don't use willpower. So that's the kind of lay, lay view on, on addiction on people with addictions today. Low on willpower and high on self-indulgement. And uh, and actually, that's I think that's a very it's a very understandable way to look at addiction that way because that's the the frame of reference most people have from their own lives. But there's been very interesting uh, neuroscientific research that say, well, kind of. Wanting and liking are different pathways. And with most people, they, they want what they like and they like what they want. Within addiction, it becomes disconnected. So there's this very strong craving, even when people doesn't value it anymore. So I think in the, the early stage, pleasure can be a, a strong motivator to, to use recreationally. And when people notice that it kind of starts to interfere with what they value in life, Willpower is not enough anymore to kind of diverge their attention because the, the one thing has become too strong and they kind of forgot about other goals. So it, it's more than, than just willpower because the one thing and the liking have become disconnected. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio and I'm speaking to Dr. Annick Snook about... Addiction. Are 
we able to rely on self-reports from addicts themselves? It's funny that you ask that because it's one of the questions I, I get when I say, well, I'm doing empirical research, I'm interviewing people with an addiction. And people often ask me, how do you know they're not lying? And I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a common view that's kind of, yeah, it, you ask them, one of the, in a way, it's, when you do empirical research, it's always a question, are, are people telling you the truth? And people with addiction have a reputation of lying about their use and lying about lying to their loved ones to kind of conceal their use. So there's this, this view that they must be lying to me. But actually, I, I don't think, I don't think people, <laughs> people lie that easily and in another way, it's, it's it's not really about the truth or not. It's, it's about the story they make of their life. And I, I talk quite long with them. So I kind of, there's this idea that they, they tell researchers different things than they tell their peers. But when I, I speak with people with addiction, there's a lot of ambivalence they have about their use, about their values, about their life. And they're quite openly about it. And they, they speak quite eloquently about this ambivalence and about the hesitation and about what they like about the drugs and what they hate about the drugs. So it's not that you get either this story like, oh, I hate it so much, I wish I could stop, or you get this story like, oh, no, it's all great. You really get these different layers. And they, they really thought about it a lot. They think about their lives a lot. So it's, yeah, I think, I think we're able to rely on self-reports. And I, I even think it's one of the best sources we have to really understand addiction and to kind of get over that that late view we have and the view from our own lives that we kind of project on them life on their lives to, to listen to what they actually have to say and, and how it how it influences their values and their lives and things they find important. Well, what are the three different attitudes to pleasure? Well, I, I looked in the, the theory a lot about, like, the, the theory of all, all people that use substances are kind of self-indulging. And, and we ask people, like, oh, what do, you, what do you get out of your substance use? And what, what role does pleasure play for you? And I think we, we saw, like, different groups. And there's, there's one group that said, oh, look, it was, I never regret taking heroin. It were the best years of my life of my life, so I, I don't regret taking heroin for the, the, the best years of my life. And they, uh, but they say, I just don't like the, the shit that comes with it. I don't like the, the consequences of my heroin use. So the pleasure played an initial role in kind of the, you know, the, the party stage, or a lot of people call it the honeymoon stage of addiction. But when they kind of notice the consequences of the use, they kind of stopped using. Because they say, well, it's, it's not the only value in my life. I, I like pleasure, but I like other things as well. And other people say, well, I like pleasure a lot. My, my life is uh, guided by hedonism as the most important value. But I kind of notice that substance use doesn't give me the most hedonism out of life. Because it's all kind of very short time, short term, it's all very short term pleasure. 
so you have a, a night of fun, but it, it really drains your money as well. So they, you say, well, I'm I'm 30 now. My friends have houses overseas, holidays, and I have a plastic bag with my clothes in it. Well, it's, it's not that pleasurable life living on heroin. So because pleasure is important to them, they stop using heroin. So that's kind of contradictory to what people would think, oh, they use because they value pleasure so much. But, you know, I, I value pleasure so much, and that's why I stopped using because I want to enjoy other things in life, and I can't if I spend all my money on heroin. And there was another group that said, well, I never experienced any pleasure out of substance use. I never had that honeymoon phase. I don't know what people are talking about when they talk about honeymoon phase. I just used to feel normal. I just used to be able to function. I just used to not feel bad about myself or to forget horrendous trauma from my childhood. So I think that that are the, the three different attitudes people can have with regard to pleasure and addiction. Like it can, it motivates you, but only at the beginning stage. And when you see that it's kind of interfering with things you find more important in life, you stop or you say, well, I, I'm, uh, I value pleasure a lot. And that's why I stopped using it. So I can spend my money on other pleasurable things. And people say, well, there's nothing to do with pleasure. Do you think that it's possible for anybody to completely recover from a serious form of addiction? I, I'm doing a follow-up interview. So I'm interviewing the same people several years. And... Uh, it's, it's very, very hard to recover from a serious form of addiction if you have a lot of collateral damage. So if you have no social contact anymore, no money, a criminal record, hepatitis C, so if you have all this collateral damage, then it's really hard to re- regain your life. The people that have strong social support or very, or very good social skills, yeah, I think everyone can recover. But it's harder than most people think. Most late lay opinion is that it just needs willpower, but in fact it needs, needs way more. Would you know what percentage of the population has some type of addiction? It's, it's kind of hard to measure because the, the, the research they do is they ask people if they have used in the past year and the people, and they, and they, have, they have numbers from people that, get into treatment but it's really hard to uh, like not many people get into treatment for addiction I think it's, it's one out of three or one out of five even that, that even that, that seeks help for their addiction so it's very hard to measure but if you look at like how many people have used a substance in the in the last year the numbers are quite high I think around 50% for alcohol 25 for cannabis, 15% for opiates, 10% for amphetamines in Australia. But those are numbers from 2009, I think. So it, it's really hard to measure. It's also hard to define addiction. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So are you planning on doing any further research in the area of addiction? Oh, I think I can spend my lifetime doing, doing research. Addiction. I first have to have to finish my my, my thesis, 
I'm, I'm really interested in the, the topic of recovery and especially the role of identity in recovery. Like how people manage, like one of the theories is that if you manage to see yourself as a non-substance user, it's easier to kind of rebuild your life. And like your identity is an important part, like an important motivator of your self-control. So if you say, I'm, I'm not the type of person that leaves someone in need beside the road, you're more inclined to help people if you have that sense of identity. So how do people reconstruct their identity in recovery? And there are some theories that say, oh, you have to kind of build a new identity. And other people say, oh, no, you have to kind of restore your old identity. And what I see with people I interviewed that some started using at such a young age. Most people start experimenting with substance use in adolescence, and that's also the kind of age where you develop your identity. So if you then already become trained in substance use, it's very hard to get back to that identity you had because you never developed that identity. So one person I interviewed said, well, one day I was 15, the next morning I wake up and I'm 38, and I've done nothing in between. And, and for someone like him, it's really hard to see his identity without substance use. Well, that's what he, and that could be, that could really help him to recover if he could see some traits of himself that are kind of independent of his substance use. Because other, other people in, that are in recovery, now that I interview them, you can see that they're kind of building on the previous identity. So now actually, I'm a very kind and loving person, so they kind of try to tweak the, the feelings of guilt and, and shame about the things they did when they were addicted. They say, no, actually, I'm, that, that's not how I am. I'm this kind of person, and that really helps them to keep being motivated in life. But that would be an area of research. I would, would like to follow up on the, the role of identity in addiction, and especially in recovering from addiction. Yeah, that, that's a very good point about identity and addiction. Uh, well, thank you very much for being on the program today. Thank you for interviewing me. And I've been speaking to Dr. Annette Snook about addiction. Are you interested in ideas? Are you interested in life? That's philosophy. So listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR. It's great. It- And I'm Meredith Doig, President of the Rationalist Society of Australia. The fourth National Elder Abuse Conference will be held in Melbourne on the 24th and 25th of February 2016. With our ageing population and greater focus on family violence, this conference is a timely and crucial part of the effort to stop elder abuse. Focusing on ageism, rights and innovation, the conference will benefit those working with older people. Early bird registrations close on the 11th of November. For more information, check out elderabuseconference.org.au or contact Seniors Rights Victoria on 1300 368 821. That's 1300 368 821. Seniors Rights Victoria is a 3CR supporter. And that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and you've been given plenty of food for thought.
The Melbourne street medics need your help. On Saturday the 18th of July, when we took to the streets against Reclaim Australia, Victoria Police pepper sprayed the crowd. We treated more than 100 people and we're asking you to donate to help restock our kits and train up new medics. We believe in empowering people to fight for a better world. Please help us to care for those who stand up for our rights. Please go to ozcrowd.com and search for Melbourne Street Medics or go to the Melbourne Street Medics Facebook page for more information on how to donate. Thank you.